Okay, let me start the PowerPoint here, and uh, you can be turning over to Isaiah chapter 50. Uh, we are uh, just about turning the final lap in our study of Isaiah. We get to 66 chapters, and that's the end of the book. So getting into the 50s now is a highlight, and uh, it gets us closer to the conclusion of our study. Um, so let me go ahead and start this. Okay, you should be able to see that now. And uh, so really the the title of the message today is, uh, we're just going to call it, if I get this going here. Hang on. There we go. And hey, look at that. There we go. So uh, in chapter 50, what we're going to see is, the third of what are called the servant songs. And uh, we'll also move into chapter 51 where we see God comforting his people. So we'll just call it the servant helped and the people comforted. And uh, so as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 50, I want you to remember a couple of things. If, if you're joining us for the first time or if you've been here all along or maybe you've been on vacation and been away, that uh, what we're looking at in Isaiah is the section of Isaiah, the second half, which is chapter 40 to 66, uh, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are largely historic and address uh, Isaiah's ministry over the course of four kings that ruled over Judah during one of the deepest, darkest times of their history. Uh, during Isaiah's ministry, we see the northern kingdom of Assyria taken or the northern kingdom of Israel taken into exile in Assyria. And uh, we see Judah, the southern kingdom, threatened by the same discipline. Although because of guys like Hezekiah that were wise kings that uh, steered the people away from sin and toward righteousness, uh, God delayed that discipline. Um, But now as we come to chapter 40 to 66, what we're thinking about is not not a time where Isaiah is talking about, uh, you know, the audience that was contemporary with him that day, people that he interacted with when he was alive. Isaiah instead is looking ahead to the exile where Judah, the southern kingdom, will be taken into captivity in Babylon, and uh, he is ministering to them, as it were, 150 years before that event. And uh, so again, if you're new, um, if you remember the book of Daniel that describes the uh, life and times of a man named Daniel and his friends while they were living in Babylon, you can just think of Daniel and that time in history. That's the That's the audience that Isaiah is writing to in chapter 40 to 66. So as we come to chapter 50, um, one of the things we're going to see here is what's called the third servant song. And you say, what's the servant song? Since Isaiah chapter 40, we have seen a couple of instances where Isaiah talks about this mysterious character called the servant or my servant. And you'll remember that sometimes the servant is just talked about as like a king of Israel. Sometimes it speaks to the whole nation. Uh, but what we've seen in the last several chapters is that that focus is narrowing. And what we're seeing is the servant is not the whole nation. It is a singular person, a singular Israelite who comes from the nation. And uh, just by way of review, just turn back to chapter 40. And let me just let's just get a little bit of a running start here. Uh, chapter 40, the second section of the book, starts with comfort 
Oh, comfort my people. And, and that theme of comfort is what takes us through the whole second half of the book of Isaiah. And one of the ways that this comfort is going to be realized as we uh, get into the book is the comfort that the comfort that God is prophesying through Isaiah to the nation comes through the servant. So flip the page over to chapter 42 and we see the first of what are called the servant songs. And, and, and all that is is, a, is a, a section of prophecy that describes this coming servant. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit in him. So that's the first servant song that we that we saw along the way. And then if you just turn the page to the right, we see the second one. We just saw that uh, last time in chapter uh, 49. Where are we here? Yes, 49 verse 5, now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. So that's the second section, uh, again, talking about the servant. And then in chapter 50, our chapter today, we will see the third instance there. So let's uh, let's just jump right in, and uh, we got a lot to cover here, okay? So chapter 50, verse 1, thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce? by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. But why was there no man when I came? And when I called, why was there none to answer? So so it's a bit confusing to see what's going on here, but what God is describing through Isaiah is Israel's perception of God's relationship with them. So on your notes there, what did Israel think happened while they were in exile? And, And you'll notice two images that Isaiah uses here. The first is the image of divorce. The second is the instance of being sold into slavery. And you can imagine that Isaiah, or that the, that Israel, in the land of Babylon, exiled and judged and disciplined and run out of Jerusalem because of their disobedience, they're sitting in Babylon wondering, what is our relationship with God like? And their conclusion was that God had divorced them. God had sold them into slavery. He had abandoned them, and uh, he, he wanted nothing to do with them anymore. And... Uh, Again, those are very painful and, and hurtful images as we might contemplate them. But God, God, as it were, says in chapter 50, verse 2, or at the end of verse 1, uh, you know, it, it is as if you were sold or sent away because they did go to Babylon. But the idea is it was not permanent. God did not divorce his people. He did not sell his people into slavery to be forgotten and, and abandoned. In fact, God says in chapter 2 that um, his hand, verse 2, is he says, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom, or have I no power to deliver? So God is saying, even though I sent you to Babylon, do you think I can't rescue you all the same? So God is the one who disciplines, but God is also the one who rescues and, and brings them back out of Babylon. Remember, this, this whole section in chapter 40 and following is about God's rescue of the exiles in Babylon through and the agency of a man who we've heard about several times, whose name is Cyrus. He is the Persian king who will come and defeat Babylon and uh, get all the Jews together and send them back to Jerusalem. 
So God is saying, look, I'm able to do that. Yes, I disciplined you. Yes, I sent you to Babylon, but I will bring you back. And and notice God uh, supports the reality that he can do that by reminding them of some pictures. Look at the end of verse 2. Behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. Now, now that's an illusion. That, that's, a, that's a reminder of something that happened in the past. Any ideas of what he's talking about there? Any ideas? This is the part where you talk, guys. This is your, this is your big break. Is it referring to when they were in the wilderness um, during the time of when Moses was leading them? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so we have some allusions here to the plagues of Egypt where God rescued them out of the, the land of Egypt. And and you'll have you noticed that, that, that God likes to use these reminders of their slavery in Egypt and his deliverance then to reinforce the fact that he can deliver them from Babylon. So he'll, he'll go back to them often like that. Look at verse 3. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Uh, again, reminding them of God's deliverance over the Egyptians. Uh, the sackcloth there is a reference to uh, the mourning of the Egyptians, uh, probably when uh, the angel of the Lord killed all the firstborn there. Okay. So uh, we see Israel's perception is God has forsaken them, has abandoned them. He sent them off. And only uh, uh, to be forgotten. And God says, no, yes, I disciplined you, but I will restore you. I will keep my word and I will keep my promises. And he uses the examples from Egypt to reinforce that he does have the ability to do that. Now, we turn the corner to verse four. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And, and again, Isaiah loves these quick scene changes. And what just happened was uh, the camera cut from Israel's perception in Babylon to somebody, an individual who's speaking. And just like we saw last time in chapter 49, that uh, the person who's speaking here is the servant, the same servant we saw in 49 verse 5. Now, he's not identified as such, but what he's going to say fits the context of what we've learned. Okay, so let's let's look at this together. First of all, we understand that the servant is saying here that he's a disciple or a learner. Remember that word disciple, just like in the New Testament, means a learner, someone who is is gaining knowledge and 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 um, information from uh, a teacher or a mentor. And it says here, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. So God is teaching the servant how to sustain weary people through ministering to them. Verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. We see, number 5 there, he is an obedient servant, right? That God is commanding him and training him, giving him work to do, and uh, he doesn't turn away from his task. Now, now let's, let's just pull over for a minute and, and talk about this. What is Isaiah doing? We've not heard much about the servant at all in the first half of the book, just isolated verses. This is the third time where Isaiah says, I want to talk to you specifically about the servant. What's happening is that God, through the prophet Isaiah, is directing us toward 
understanding who this servant is more and more because the servant is going to be the culmination or the climax of the second half of the book of Isaiah. So he's building up this whole idea of who the servant is because, and let me just need to look at you here for a minute. So the, um, the, the, the thing to see here is it's what happening is we, we've got two, these two themes, right? We've got the theme of God's comfort, and that's he, he's continuing to say, hey, I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deliver you. There's a hope. I'm going to keep my promises. And then with that theme is this other uh, topic that keeps coming along with it, which is the servant. And, and what's going to happen is Isaiah is setting up a thematic collision between the comfort he will offer his people and the servant by whom he will bring the comfort. It's the servant ultimately who will bring the comfort to his people and deliver God's people from their sins. And so that's what he's doing. He's going back and forth between these two themes. Remember I told you Isaiah is like a carousel. You watch it. You know, you remember that when your kids were little and, you know, your, your daughter's on the pink pony on the little carousel and there she goes around, right? And there's the pink pony. Okay, there she goes. Oh, there's the pink pony again. They go, there's the, and you keep seeing the pink pony over and over and over. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's taking these same themes and he says, hey, look at this. And then he takes it away. Hey, look at this. Oh, that's kind of cool on the camera. Ooh, right? Um, you know, it's, here's it, right? And, and he keeps bringing these themes back and forth and back and forth so that we, we would say he's being repetitive and making us dizzy. But actually, this is a good technique of learning. He continues to build elements toward the comfort that he will offer and identifying the servant. And as and you guys know where we're going. We're getting very, very close to the pinnacle of the mountain range of Isaiah 40 to 66, and that is Isaiah 53. Okay, so keep that in mind as we move along here. That's what he's doing. He's building up toward this uh, this great chapter that we know is coming. So the servant is a learner. The servant is obedient. Thirdly, notice this, that the servant sacrifices his body. Look, this is really interesting. Look at this. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Now, this is interesting, especially because we've read the end of the story. We know that this servant from Isaiah, that this servant will be the agent of salvation and the agent of rescue for God's people. We know that. But we don't know anything about how it's going to happen. And so Isaiah, remember the pink pony's coming by again. And, and every time we see that, Isaiah is adding a little more information. He's giving us a little more detail. And here he gives us a very important insight, which we will see graphically fulfilled first in Isaiah 53 and then ultimately in the Gospels of the New Testament where Jesus is crucified. And that is this. He sacrifices his body in order to redeem Israel. And, uh, you know, the, the, even the reference to spitting there and humiliation is significant because the Gospel writers all make a point to remind us that the Roman soldiers spit on Jesus. And we say, well, why would they give us that detail? Well, because it points us back to this chapter, to the servant who will come and literally fulfill what we're reading here in Isaiah 50. Okay, so he will sacrifice his body. Number four, he is committed in the midst of shame. Verse seven, for the Lord 
God helps me. This is interesting. The servant is not an autonomous agent in the plan of God. The servant, as the name implies, is the servant of God himself. He comes as the agent of God. He comes to deliver the people, uh, having been given the mission from God to do that. And he comes fully dependent on and leaning upon God himself. And again, this is very interesting as we think about the New Testament because we don't ever get the idea that Jesus parachutes into the Gospels like Rambo or the Terminator or, you know, uh, you know, some other secret agent, uh, 007 or something like that. God, all, God always makes clear in the Gospels that Jesus comes as the clear agent and servant of God the Father. And we're going to read really interesting things in the Gospels like this. Jesus went to the mountain to pray to his father. Jesus is going to tell us in the Gospels, I came to do the will of my father. I only speak what I hear my father tell me. So there's this connectedness between God the father and God the son. And so we see here that that's not a new idea. Back here in Isaiah in chapter 50, the servant comes and who is said to be helping the servant to complete his mission? What what do you see there in verse 5? God. Or excuse me, verse 7. God. Yeah, God the Father is helping him, right? That's that's the connection we see here. He says, because the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Do you remember what Peter says about this in his letter? He says, though Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. Though he suffered, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, meaning he kept entrusting himself to the Father. That's how he was able to walk through God's plan of redemption. As painful and horrible as it was, he leaned upon his Father the whole time. Verse 8, he is righteous, though some will contend with him. Look at verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Again, a reference to the Father. Just I think Peter talks about that, the him who judges righteously. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? So you see, and this is crazy, especially in light of what Pastor Terry has just been talking about in Romans 11. Because Romans 11, 9, 10, and 11 tell us that not only did some people contend with the Messiah and reject him and pour shame and humiliation on him, most of Israel did that. And so that's that's just, again, fulfilled prophecy uh, that people will contend with him. They will stand up against him. They will bring cases against the Messiah. And, and, and we don't see it here this clearly, but we also we ultimately understand that it was Jewish leadership that put Jesus on the cross, didn't they? Now, the Romans conspired. We know the Romans were a part of that, too. But really the plot and plan against the Messiah came from the Jewish leadership. And so again, we see that being referenced in terms of prophecy right here. And finally, verse 9, those who condemn him will not last. Nonetheless, though people conspire against him, a case is made uh, against him, they will not last. Why? Verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them, uh, and they will be no more, okay? So again, 
God will help the servant. And notice the the repetition. Verse 7, God will help him. Verse 9, God will help him. Uh, That's called an envelope figure. Uh, Isaiah is putting those as bookends of this section to emphasize that the servant, the Messiah, will be successful because God, his father, is helping him. And all that leads to this challenge then. Which side are you on? The, The Messiah is coming. The servant is coming. It's clear that this is the agent of God. And so Isaiah now turns to the people and says, who are you going to obey? Who are you going to trust? Verse 10, who who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Those who fear and obey and trust and rely need to continue to do so, Isaiah says. And there's that remnant, right? There's the, the Jewish teenagers in the land of Babylon that trusted him and were leaning on him. But the the vast majority of the people fall into verse 11. Listen to verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, and walk in the light of your fire. You say, what, what is he saying there? He's saying these are people who are relying on themselves and their own works in order to find rescue. And, of course, we don't have to guess what that is because Isaiah has been telling us for chapter after chapter the main way God's people have done that in Babylon is by turning to other gods and gods of their own making. Okay, so Isaiah punctuates the end here simply by saying, whose side are you on? Which side will you choose? And, of course, those who choose to trust in self, verse 11 says, you will lie down in torment. Just like the way we saw chapter uh, 48 end. Remember that? 48 ended on a bitter note. There is no peace for the wicked. Chapter 50 ends the same way. You will lie down in torment if you continue to trust yourself. Okay, so the servant has spoken. He has told us of his mission and his agency. God will help him. He comes as the uh, the enactor of God's plan. And now the Israelites have a, have a decision to make. Who are they going to trust in, ultimately? Now, Watch this, verse 51. One of the things I want you to see as I read verse 51, and you'll notice there aren't a whole lot of notes there uh, on your outline, because I want you to be overwhelmed with the point of 51. Uh, God, through Isaiah, has just said, which side are you on? Pick a side. Now, I want you to see how God shepherds his people to choose the right decision. Okay, And the way he's going to do that is he's going to get out his his prophetic machine gun and he is going to rattle off hundreds of rounds of exhortations. That's the first thing I want you to see. I want you to notice the commands. This is God through Isaiah saying, now is the time to respond. Now is the time to obey, not just for deliverance from Babylon, but, of course, deliverance from your sins. Now is the time to listen up, wake up, and respond to the message of Isaiah regarding his servant. Okay, chapter 51, verse 1. Uh, keep, keep your seatbelt fastened. We're going to rattle through this, and, and hopefully I can teach it in a way that reflects the intent of the text. This comes at you quick. It comes at you rapid fire. And uh, I think God intends to overwhelm his people with encouragement and calls to action here. Chapter 51, verse 1. And and, uh, you may want to do in your Bible what I did in my Bible when I was studying this. Just underline all the commands. 
It's amazing how many commands he gives here in this section. 51.1, listen to me. There's command number one. You who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look, there's command two. To the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look, there's command number three. To Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and I multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make her like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her and thanksgiving in sound and melody. The other thing I want you to notice here are some themes. And we just stumbled upon the first theme. And that is the theme of comfort. God says, which side are you on? Pick a side. And then he exhorts them to act. He exhorts them to respond. But as he does, he is going to woo them and entice them by reminding them that if they will choose the Lord, there is comfort and blessing and encouragement. And so you'll see that word comfort used multiple times here in the section. Back to the text here. Verse 4. Pay attention. There's another command to me, O my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. Uh, That's the second theme, by the way, God's righteousness and salvation. God says, I'm going to comfort you if you'll turn to me, and I will bring you both righteousness and salvation. Remember, I know we've been in Isaiah a long time, but you remember one of the main criticisms that God had against his people that goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1 is they were living in rampant injustice. Widows were being neglected. Orphans were being neglected. Uh, government officials, even religious leaders were corrupt and, and uh, involved in bribery and, and acts of injustice and, and false governing. They were showing partiality to the rich. They were neglecting the, the poor. And, and, and all of this in the midst of a rampant idolatrous culture. So God says, if you will turn to me now, not only will I comfort you out of your discipline, I will bring righteousness and I will bring salvation. Back to verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the sky. Look to the earth beneath, for the sky will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants will die in a manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. God God takes them on a field trip, right? That's what he does. He says, go outside. Look at the heavens. Look up in the sky. Look at all the beauty there. Look at the earth. Look down. Look at everything here. He says, all of that will go away one day. All of that will be burned up. But my righteousness and my salvation will outlast those things. And again, you, you hear God saying, doesn't it make sense to trust me and gain something that will last beyond the temporary, last beyond the earthly? Turn to me, he says. Verse 7, listen to me. You who know righteousness, a, in a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their reviling. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. That's a little bit graphic, but again, what God is saying is, don't fear your enemies. Your enemies will die and rot. But I am the Lord who brings righteousness and salvation, 
and I will save you. Verse, the end of verse 8, my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. Now, watch this, verse 9. Wake up! Awake, he says. You say, why the language? Because Israel is sleeping. Israel is drowsy from idolatry and discouragement and and discipline and captivity and exile and 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 in uh, like waking my teenagers up this morning for church. You know, you're rousing them, you're shaking them, saying, "Wake up! It's time to go." And Isaiah looks at the people and says, "It's time to go." Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces and pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? And again, what do we see there? I showed you this earlier. We see a reference to God's deliverance of Israelites in Egypt, right? That's the Red Sea crossing that he's talking about here. And God says, just as I delivered your people in the past, I will deliver you again now. That's my track record, he says. Verse 11, so the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with with joyful shouting to Zion. And an everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee. I, even I, am he who comforts you. There's our theme of comfort again, right? And who are you? That you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens. Isaiah says, don't fear the Babylonians. Don't fear your captors. Do you forget what happens to people? They die. And yet God says, my righteousness, my salvation, my relationship with you will last eternally. And they say, how do we know that you did that? Verse 13 God says to them, remember, I'm the one who laid the foundations of the earth and stretched out the heavens. He says that you would continually fear all day long because of the fury of your oppressors as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? He says, look, I'm the God who made the universe. I am going to destroy your enemy. You're going to look and you're not going to find them. So don't worry about them. Don't stress about that. Trust me. And you remember, guys, remember what's going on. Part of the reason they don't want to trust the Lord is that would mean they would have to defy the Babylonians and defy the Babylonian gods. So they're looking at at their enemies saying, hey, as long as we bow down to the Babylonian gods and kind of do what we're told, it appears that we're safe. And yet our, our God is telling us to turn away from idolatry, turn away from your captors, and trust me. And yet that's a risk, isn't it? Just like Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah in the fiery furnace. It's a risk to say no to the leadership of Babylon to say yes to Yahweh. And God says, remember who I am. I delivered you from Egypt. I made the heavens and the earth. You can trust me. And I will take care of your captives. Look at verse 14. The exile will soon be set free. That's talking about the the Jews in exile in Babylon. And will not die in the dungeon nor will his bread be lacking. He says, I'm not going to leave you to die in Babylon. I'm going to bring you back. Verse 15, for I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth and to say to Zion, you are my people. So verse 17, notice the escalation, right? In verse 51, chapter 51, verse one, he said, listen and look and look. 
In verse 4, he says attention. Verse 6, he says lift up your eyes. Verse 9, he says wake up, wake up. Here he says in verse 17, what? Rouse yourself. Get up. Get moving. And that brings us to our third theme, a call to action. All these imperatives that we see here. Get up, listen, wake up, rouse yourself, arise, go. You, Verse 17 now. You who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained, drained to the dregs. And there is none to guide her among all the sons she has born, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. What's, what's, what's Isaiah saying? He's saying this. Look, you've gone to captivity. God has disciplined you there. And guess what? That discipline has now come to an end. You have drunk the judgment of God down to the dregs. You've been disciplined fully. Now it's time to come home. Verse 19. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, the famine and the shore. How shall I comfort you? So God is saying, look, you have great reason to be discouraged. Some of your people have died. Uh, some of you are mourning um, loss of loved ones. And, and God says, how am I going to comfort you? Verse 20, your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, street like an antelope in a net, like full of wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. So here, here's the comfort coming in verse 21. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. Listen to this, verse 22. You will never drink it again. That's the deliverance, right? God is turning away his wrath, his judgment from his people in Babylon. He says, no more. It's done. My affliction, my disciplinary affliction has ceased. And instead, I will now turn my judgment on your enemies. Verse 23, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. Those who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have made your back like the ground and like the street through those who walk over it. Okay, so do you see it? That's what's going on here. God's going to comfort his people. He's offering them righteousness and salvation that will last. He says, your judgment, your discipline is over. Now turn to me, act, uh, get up, wake up, come and trust me. And, and by the way, he's not done. Look at 52 verse 1. Awake, clothe yourself with strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. He says, your return to Jerusalem is coming. Get up, clean up, put your best clothes on because it's time to go home. And we see God's agency through the servant being a part of their deliverance from Babylon. But even more, even more is the deliverance that they need so that their law is in their heart. Did you catch the little phrase, they're drunk but not on wine? Did you catch that? That reminds them, and this is, this is why we often use a metaphor of 
of drunkenness or addiction when we think of idolatry. Their drunkenness is not on wine. Their drunkenness is on their own self-sufficiency and idolatry. And the servant has, has something to say in terms of how he will deliver them, not just from Babylon, but from the idolatry of the sin in their hearts. But to see that, you have to come back next week. Okay, We're, we, we are on the doorstep of the pinnacle of our of our book here as we move into Isaiah 53. And uh, man, do, do you see, I was telling Lisa this, do, do you see how God through Isaiah is building up to chapter 53? We just like to read chapter 53 and say, oh, that's great. But he's building up to this. Comfort is converging with the servant. And we will see the, the, the collision course in chapter 53. Okay, let me pray. And then uh, those of you that... Uh, need to come on up here to the church, can head that way. Lord, we thank you for how you comfort your people, even in the midst of discipline that that is rightly deserved, uh, that you promise salvation and righteousness and uh, a faithfulness to what you have promised to your people. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that in the servant, as we've been learning, Pastor Terry, that those many of those promises, though not made to us who are non-Jewish, nonetheless, those promises come to us in the new covenant through the gospel. And uh, we're grateful. Thank you that we can trust you. And uh, thank you for how we once again see your faithfulness and your wonderful character shown to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.